relationship with. I love the idea of it. I hate the execution of it. <laughs> and I don't hate it necessarily, but um, it's something that I'll, you know, I'll read how it's something I should be doing, and I'll, you know, I'll get all excited about it, and I'll go out and I'll get a, you know, you know, something a little bit nicer than a notebook. Get a nice, you know, go to Barnes and Noble and get a, a, a nice journal, and I'll be very good about it for a couple of days, and then uh, it just sort of quickly falters. And uh, you can ask my wife, I have a drawer full of like one quarter to half filled journals. But I still will go out and get a new one if I want to start again. You know, that's the only way to do this. But I was recently reading something, and it kind of encouraged me to, to give it a shot again, to, to try it again, that, you know, that there was value. And there was something that I, uh, well, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So I thought, okay, I'm... One of my struggles has always been, well, I'm not really sure what to journal. Um, so I thought, well, let's see if I find a book. And I found this really great book. It was like $1.99 or something as an e-book on Kindle, and it was called Effortless Journaling. And I thought, oh, this is for me. <laughs> Effortless Journaling. And so I'm looking through this book, and it really is a great book. If you ever have struggled with journaling, I would highly recommend this book. They give you nine different methods of approaching journaling. So it's really good. But there was something in the book, uh, in the section where it talked about why journaling was so beneficial that, uh, that really sort of got me interested. And it said this, cursive handwriting stimulates brain synapses and synchronicity between the left and right hemispheres, something that's absent from printing and typing. So there's actually a mental health benefit from writing, from, from actually spending some time writing. So I thought, okay, like I needed any more encouragement. So I got that, and then I was looking through the tips you know, that they, from the book, and it had all these different you know, methods of journaling. And the one that I decided on uh, was using something called journaling prompts. Okay. So really, all a journaling prompt is, it's a, s a list of questions that um, just give you a topic to journal on. So it might be a life question, some sort of a really deep question that you might ask yourself. There's questions where you kind of get to know yourself a little bit better, things like that. So I went out, I found a list of 101 journaling prompts. I'm like, okay, well, I'm good for at least, you know, a good chunk of the year. So... The other day, I encountered a really interesting question. And the question was this. What do I want to be remembered for most when I die? Yeah, it's one of those questions that really makes you think about things. You know? And so I pondered this for a minute or so. And, you know, a bunch of different things were running through my head. And then I realized that the answer at least for me, was that I wanted to be remembered for making a difference in somebody else's life. And so I'm just going to read you what I wrote. It's not long. So I said, when I see this nice journal, actually someone gave me this. <laughs> it's a, well, I know, and I've filled in almost all the pages since the beginning. So it's, <laughs> I'm, and there's some that I've, I'm afterwards too. Um, so here's what I wrote. When I die, I'd like to be remembered for making a difference in the life of others. Nothing else seems very important when compared to that. We all desire a measure of greatness to be remembered 
for great deeds or accomplishments or for, have, for being successful as the world defines it. John, turn off your phone. Most people, me included, don't have the means to affect massive change, but we do have the means to affect change in a single person. Hopefully at the end of my life, that will have happened multiple times. So, that's what I wrote. Now, I don't know, we're going to talk about Joseph of Arimathea today. And I don't know if Joseph ever pondered that question. Um, as we're going to see here in a minute, he was a very rich, a very influential person in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. Um, but in terms of the biblical story, he's really a rather insignificant character. He's just mentioned in, in a couple of verses. Um, but as we look at his story today, I want you to think about the impact that he had, the difference that he made in the history of the world with the single gesture of service and kindness that uh, he's known for through the biblical text. So we're going to look at three different passages from three different Gospels because there's very little written about Joseph, so you really are not going to get a full picture of him from just reading one. So we're going to start with this text from Matthew. It says, this is Matthew 27, verse 57. Matthew 27, 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who, was, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Now, kind of significant here that it's mentioning evening, okay, because that's the beginning of Sabbath and the end of the Passover day, all right? And so uh, Arimathea, as far as we know, was probably a town in northern Judea. And um, it's, we're introduced to Joseph here in Matthew, and then he's mentioned, as I said, in some of the other parallel passages in the other Gospels, primarily because of his generosity in giving a tomb for Jesus' burial. That's what he's known for. Joseph uh, was one of the very few rich men that actually managed to be loyal to Jesus. Uh, and there's a passage in Isaiah that talks about that. And so this was not a small thing, because if you really think about it, um, popular opinion at the time was very much running against Jesus. Obviously, they wanted him dead. Um, and it looked like the Jewish leaders had scored a pretty impressive victory here in putting down this rebel, if you will, um, and it was really dangerous for anybody else uh, to associate with Jesus or to have you know, them be somehow known to be uh, associated with him. But Joseph remained loyal because he really had become a faithful disciple of Jesus. All right, let's continue looking at this. So now we're going to go to Mark, and this is Mark 15, verse 43. And again it says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, a little history. When crucifixion victims were buried, um, they were normally just thrown into common graves. They, they didn't receive any kind of an honorable death. Uh, and, and typically it would be in a family tomb because 
most uh, graveyards or tombs were owned by families. They were part of families, and so you were buried in the family tomb. Now, the one exception to this rule of crucifixion victims just being dumped in an open grave were made if a relative came and asked for the body of the victim, for the, uh, the criminal in this case. However, in this case, the crime against Jesus was effectively treason, saying that he was the Jewish king. Um, and so the likelihood of an exception being made even to a family member was fairly small. So it would have to have been a very influential person to come and plead their case before Pilate. And so, uh, and in fact, Joseph, it says Joseph was an influential man and a member of the council. He would have had to have been to even get an audience with Pilate. I mean, you didn't just walk in off the street and say, hey, is Pontius available? I'd like five minutes of his time. That didn't happen. You had to know someone or you had to be known by him to even get in to see him. Now, there was clearly um, a Jewish law that says that dead bodies should have a proper burial. And so Pilate, or excuse me, Joseph clearly knew this, and so he goes to the one person that he knows can give him the permission to take down the body. And so Pilate, in fact, orders that that be done, that that happens. Um, as a side note, it essentially sort of shows convincingly that Jesus was dead. Um, any possibility that the authorities, you know, had somehow left a condemned rebel leader alive or could somehow escape death was really out of the question. So they were certain. Um, and we also have the fact that the, all the disciples were hiding. <laughs> they were nowhere to be found. Uh, and so, again, they wouldn't have been in any kind of a position to steal the body. And so the thing is, if Jesus had actually died on the Sabbath when Joseph was unavailable, his body would have been taken down by the Romans and done away with. And an executed man in those, t in those days lost all dignity. Like I said, it was typical. You left the body on the cross until it rotted, and then you took it down and you threw it away, essentially, into some common grave. And if the Romans had taken Jesus' body, then there would have been no Jew able to confirm that he had actually died, and his opponents could have disputed whether or not he actually resurrected or not. All right, so now we jump ahead to the Gospel of John. And this is John 19, chapter 19, verses 40 through 42. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as, the as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So by burying his body, Joseph and Nicodemus is in this with him. You would have read that if you'd gone a couple of verses up. That it was Nicodemus that actually brought the 75 pounds of spices. Um, they're performing a culturally significant act of respect and faithfulness in making sure that Jesus has a proper burial. Um, Burying the dead was truly an important service of love uh, in Jewish piety, okay? And so 
con conversely, if they left someone unburied, that was a great source of shame in that culture. And so that's why this was so important. And, and really, through this, this very public act of piety, both Joseph and Nicodemus are making known their relationship with Jesus. That this wasn't just sort of a, you know, oh, he's kind of a friend of mine. Or, you know, you have Peter's wonderful, well, I've never met him. They were very upfront in, in sort of acknowledging that they not only had a relationship, but it was a very deep and a very close relationship as well. <coughs> Especially if you were to bury someone in your own family's tomb, there wasn't really much in that sense that could go beyond it in terms of reverence and affection for somebody. And like I said, because the cemeteries and burial plots in this period almost always were family-owned. And what would happen is that, you know, it said that they laid his body in the tomb. Well, that was typical. That would, they would lay the body in the tomb, and it would stay there for about a year. The idea being until it fully decayed, or, or just the bones were left. And then they would go in at the end of a year, collect the bones, put them in a little box of some sort, and slide them into a slot that was part of the tomb. So you could bury multiple people in there. Um, and that, of course, was the reason for the spices. Um, they would be placed in the tomb to offset the odor of a body that was decaying. And as I said, uh, Nicodemus brings in 75 pounds of such spices, and that's a huge number. But essentially what they're saying is it was an amount of spice that would be fit for a king. sure if I should move. <laughs> All right. So in this, this whole practice of, of doing that um, essentially sort of relates to the Jewish hope that there was going to be a resurrection. You know, at the end of the age, they did believe in the resurrection, unless you were part of the Sanhedrin, which did not. So why do you think John belabors this point that Jesus was buried in a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid? Well, um, D.A. Carson is a uh, Bible commentator, and he writes, From the perspective of the Jewish authorities, this was doubtless less offensive than burying a crucified sinner in an occupied tomb. But more likely, John's purpose is to prepare for chapter 20. Because if on the third day the tomb is empty, only one body had been disappeared, and there was only one person that could have been resurrected. Hence the need for a new tomb. And that, my friends, is essentially the extent of our knowledge of Joseph of Arimathea and his 15 minutes of biblical fame. But he made his 15 minutes count. And, and because of that, the big idea that we take away from the ver these verses today is this. Joseph of Arimathea overcame fear and played a small but crucial role in the resurrection of Jesus. So what does his example mean to us? What does it tell us? What does it compel us to do? Well, I think, first of all, we need to understand that Joseph's act of service was motiva motivated by his love for Jesus. As I said earlier, Joseph risked a lot 
by requesting this body from Pilate. He put his reputation on the line. He put his standing in the Jewish community on the line. Perhaps he even put his life on the line. I mean, clearly the apostles thought they had something to be afraid of because they were in hiding. But he was able to get past all of that because he loved Jesus and he wanted him to have a proper burial. You see, God doesn't call most of us to that extreme level of service. Some of us, like our friend Shelley, are called to be missionaries in countries that are not necessarily hospitable to the gospel. And it's not easy. Now, if you're aware of Shelley's story, God has certainly been with her throughout this in some very amazing ways. But that's not necessarily what we're all called to do. But regardless of whatever type of service we're called to, it should be about our love for Jesus and our desire to see everyone else experience the kind of love that we not only have from him, but feel toward him. Now right now, I would say for the most part, we are a body of mature believers. We are people who have been walking with Jesus, for the most part, for a fairly long time. And in that situation, there is often a complacency that sets in. Perhaps even a tendency to think that we've done enough, that we've served enough. Let's just let somebody else get involved. Believe me, I get that. But here's what I need you to do. I need you to go back in your mind to when you first decided to follow Jesus. I need you to recapture the enthusiasm that you had in that moment. And I need you to tap into that enthusiasm and get past the complacency and get back in the game. Because there are thousands of people right here around us in this community and in the surrounding cities who need you serving Jesus as part of this church and demonstrating for them his love. Did you know that most people that d decide to go to a church decide whether or not they're going to come back in the first 10 minutes now, that's not the first 10 minutes of the service. That's That 10 minutes starts from the moment they pull into the parking lot. The clock starts then. They're going to make a decision many times before a note of worship is played and before a word of the sermon is preached. They're going to decide based on the cleanliness of the parking lot, based on finding a parking space, based on if it's obvious where they're supposed to go, based on whether the greeters pay more attention to them than they do to their cell phones, based on whether or not people say hello, based on whether or not the snacks are any good, if the restrooms are clean. 
I'm not joking, folks. This is all true. That's what new people are looking at. These are people that don't know Jesus. They, they don't understand yet that that's not the reason you come to church. But that's where they are. And we're called to love people exactly where they are. No matter what. And see, it takes a lot of manpower for all of that to be the way it needs to be on a Sunday morning. So I'm asking all of you to rekindle your love of Jesus. And like Joseph of Arimathea, to serve Jesus out of that love for him and for the mission that he came to accomplish. These points are kind of all over the place, so bear with me. The second thing I think we notice in this, uh, this text is that kindness should be the calling card of Jesus' followers. Now, what Joseph did was not only an act of service, but it was an act of kindness, too. And I think that kindness ought to be the calling card of anybody who follows Jesus. And if you want to stand out in today's highly polarized world, then you need to adopt an attitude of kindness in all things. In all things. If you want to spend less time annoying your neighbors, alienating your friends and family members, and do a better job of reflecting the integrity and authenticity of Jesus, adopt an attitude of kindness in all things. I recently heard pastor and author Scott Sauls talking about a new book that he wrote called Irresistible Faith. <coughs> Excuse me, Irresistible Faith. And he said the following, and I'm quoting. One of the things I say in the book is that God has not just called his people to be the best kinds of friends. He's also called us to be the best kinds of enemies to the end that as far as it depends on us, as Hebrews says, we don't have any enemies. And you know, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people, the scripture says. To really put on the front of our radar the importance of our witness in the midst of this environment. And I think the greatest argument in favor for Christianity right now, in this climate, is kindness. I can't think of a better way to be countercultural in a way that says Jesus is above all of this. And Jesus is somebody that you ought to get to know. That critical masses of his people in every town, municipality, etc., responding to all of this madness with a gentle answer that turns away wrath with kindness. And he goes on to say this. The scriptures say it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. We all know what it feels like we're, we're, when we're in a disagreement with somebody and they're the first one to apologize. It melts us. It causes our guard to go down. And whenever somebody humbles themselves with us, unless we're sociopaths, our hearts are going to be warmed toward that person. And we're going to think more highly of them than we ever have. And you know, what a secret weapon that could be. Humility and kindness in a world that seems to be so absent of humility and kindness. Because we all want to get in our digs and our pound of flesh from somebody. 
So I would ask this, what would you need to change about your thoughts, your words, and your actions if you were to do everything with kindness? I'll give you a place to start. Let's decide today to decouple Christianity with partisan politics. I further agree with Scott when he said that the major reasons Christians are thought of as intolerant and irrelevant is partisanship. And it's not just coming from one side. It's both conservative and liberal. And whether you want to admit it or not, there are Christian values on both sides of that spectrum. From the conservative focus to the sanctity of life, in the value of hard work to the liberal focus on social justice and equality. And I'll even tell you, there's a test that you can take when you're talking about politics with an eye towards kindness. You want to know what it is? You're not going to like it. It's when your conservative friends think you're too liberal and your liberal friends think you're too conservative. If that's where you are, you're probably about right where you need to be. Because it shows that you're open to ideas on both sides. And you're not just automatically discarding one because you're in some echo chamber where you, all you hear is your own thoughts and words. You see, scolding and lecturing and winning arguments does not win the world for Jesus. It puts people in their place. It reinforces your own self-righteousness. And it just keeps you in your echo chambers where the only people that are listening to your preaching is the choir. And it does no good for the world. That does not mean that we don't stand up for justice. But maybe start by defending someone else's rights instead of defending your own. Let's get to your rights a little later on and defend somebody else's rights for a while and see what that does to your kingdom impact. God gave us three institutions. He gave us the family, he gave us the church, and he gave us government. Partisan politics, or politics in general, is man's invention. Kindness should be the calling card of a Jesus follower. And finally, I would say this. When God calls, grab some linens and start serving. The story of Joseph of Arimathea reveals that even the simplest of actions, service toward others, and obedience in faith create an opportunity for God to do the miraculous. God uses every seemingly minuscule act of service to reveal his grace. God is calling each and every person here to serve his church in order that the lost may be saved, the sick may be healed, and the broken and the hurting may be made whole. What if every person who calls this place his or her church home were to serve in some capacity every Sunday morning. Or excuse me, one Sunday morning a month. 
one Sunday a month. One Sunday a month. To be a greeter. To train up a child in the way he or she should go by teaching a Sunday school class. By getting the communion elements ready. By making sure the sanctuary is ready for the service. By putting out directional signs. By picking up stray trash. And yes, perhaps even cleaning a toilet. As I said last week when I taught on spiritual gifts, the one gift that is the underpinning of the entire church is service. And service is not so much a matter of gifting as it is a matter of intent. You can take all the spiritual gift gifts tests you want, and believe me, I'm not opposed to them. I think they're good things, and they can be helpful. But there's not going to be a spiritual gifts test that tells you Oh, you have a gift of taking out the trash, or you have a gift of cleaning toilets, or you have a gift of vacuuming. Those are all things we do because we know they need to be done. They're things that we do because we love Jesus, and we want other people to get to know him too, and to love him the way we do. And if the facilities are off-putting, when somebody comes in, we may have lost the only opportunity that we would ever have to let somebody in on the love of Jesus. So, my faith in action points kind of in your face this week. Will you commit to serving in some capacity one Sunday a month. You see, if Joseph of Arimathea doesn't do what God is leading him to do, then there's no grave for Jesus to resurrect from. And Joseph misses his opportunity to demonstrate his love and devotion to Jesus. Don't miss your opportunity. I started out this message talking about what you want to be remembered, what I wanted to be remembered for when I died. And I'm sure all of you took a moment to think about that. Now, I don't know. Maybe you would come up with a different answer than I did. That's okay. But I could see by the looks on your faces that the answer that I came up with resonated with many of you. This is your chance to do that. I can't think of anything that would be more appropriate at the end of a person's life to say, and you know what, folks? This is maybe something that you would do <coughs> and nobody would ever have an idea that you did it. 
Nobody knows the person who empties the trash or who makes the coffee. I mean, it's sort of like, if you think about it, we can all name the great quarterbacks who've played in the Super Bowl, right? You know, Tom Brady, Joe Montana, uh, Brett Favre, et cetera, et cetera. Peyton Manning, yes, dear. <laughs> but how many of you can name even one of the linemen that block for him? Now, maybe if you're a huge fan of a particular team, you might know. But chances are you don't. Those are the guys that labor in anonymity. These huge, hulking guys who stand up there, their name rarely gets mentioned. If it does get mentioned on TV, it's probably because they've screwed up. <laughs> they missed a block, somebody got past them, flattened the quarterback, and now the whole world knows their name, at least for those few minutes. But if they're doing their job, nobody really knows who they are. It's kind of the same with serving in the church. It's just a bunch of people doing little things as acts of love that then make this place a warm and welcoming place for anybody who enters here. And in doing that, I guarantee you, you will have made a difference in somebody's life, even if they don't know it or you don't know it. God knows it. And isn't that what's really important? You want to come back up? <coughs> so don't miss your opportunity. Return to your first love. Pick up a linen or a bucket of spice and serve your Lord. talked a lot about Jesus this morning. I suppose that's a good thing, right? We're in church. Probably should talk about Jesus. <laughs> but there may be somebody here who's, who doesn't really know him. Who has never entered into a, the kind of relationship that most of you here have. A relationship that is very personal a relationship that goes beyond the religious trappings that we tend to get very tied up in and think are important, but really aren't. And so if that's you that has never truly made that kind of a commitment, I just want to give you the opportunity to do that today.
So if everyone would just close your eyes. And you can say this out loud. You can say it in your heart. You can remember it and say it when you get home. It doesn't really matter as long as you pray it. And so we come before you, Father God, and we confess that we are sinful. We confess that through years or decades of trying to be good, trying to do the right thing, that even that effort falls flat. Because there is nothing that we can do on our own that makes us worthy or acceptable to you. But you made a way. You did not leave us in that sinful state unless we so chose. For that is why Jesus came. And so, as we confess our sinfulness, we reach out and we take the hand of the one who takes away the sin of the world. And we invite Jesus into our lives right now. We confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, as Lord of our life. We welcome the presence of the Holy Spirit of God who now dwells in us. We give praise and thanks to the God who did not leave us in the sorry state that we were in. But through that simple act of accepting His forgiveness and professing faith in His Son, He has now elevated us to a place where we are no longer called sinners, but saints. So we give you thanks and praise, Father God. Teach all of those who may be making this confession for the first time how to walk in your ways. how that as they attempt to draw near to you, you will in turn draw near to them. So all praise and honor and glory is yours, Father. We give you thanks. And we ask this prayer before you now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, is there anybody here who would, and you don't have to, <coughs> but if you would like to, if you prayed that.